don't want to single her out or embarrass her, but with Helena here, she's married to our head elder. That means our first lady is in the house. It's good to have you both. Good to have you all here. Good to have you all here. I uh, introduced a term a couple weeks ago, uh, this term Christian nationalism, and I had quite a few people uh, kind of ask me a little bit as if it was kind of the first time that they've heard it. And that's what this series has kind of been about. So I just wanted to share with you from uh, Catherine Stewart in her book, The Power Worshippers. Christian nationalism is not a religious creed, but a political ideology. It promotes the myth that American Republic was founded as a Christian nation. Note what she says. The myth that America was founded as a Christian nation. It asserts that legitimate government rests not on the consent of the governed, but on adherence to the doctrines of specific religious, ethnic, and cultural heritage. It demands that our laws be passed not on the reasoned deliberation of our democratic institutions, but on particular idiosyncratic interpretations of the Bible. Its defining fear is that the nation has strayed from the truths that once made it great. And then I also introduced you to um, Alan Reinach, who is the director, longtime uh, religious liberty director of the Pacific Union. He also directed and is CEO of churchstate.org. His definition for us was this. It's a religion. Remember that Christian nationalism has a national part and it has a Christian part. So the Christian part, he defines this way. It is a Christian religion, but it is without the biblical Jesus. It's without Christ's teachings. No beatitudes, no blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, no love your enemy, love your neighbor, no beating your swords into plowshares. Instead, it's an idolatrous patriotism that confuses American power with the kingdom of God. We began this whole series as another look at Revelation 13. When I began that week, and, and I said, let's take a look at Revelation 13. As always in Adventist churches, you get an amen when you know we're gonna look at Revelation 13, right? And we got a few. And I wanted to revisit and check where we might be in our apocalyptic understanding, where we might be in these last days. I introduced this concept of Christian nationalism, but our teachers and our authors, our religious liberty leaders, our past, some pastors and preachers see it perfectly, see it perfectly being fulfilled in front of us, this two-horned beast from the land being completely, I guess, identified as this, as this new power. And I won't, I, I hesitate to call it new. It, I think it, it is a new revelation to us today. But I believe this beast's power has been evolving in our nation ever since 1850. And when we look at the seven churches, Philadelphia lasts until about 1850. And after 1850, what other church comes up? Laodicea, and who is that? That's us, that's right. That's us, the last church. So I see this, this perfect fusion of religious and civil power mixed and fulfilled with this. I think that Christian nationalism is even a perfect title for it because it describes exactly what it is. 
There are blurred lines and boundaries as to where the national and the Christian part begin and end. We've been down the road of the national part. I picked on America a couple weeks ago. For those of us, for those that believe that America really reflects a Christian ideal, who look at the Constitution as being divinely inspired, I think all you have to do is explore it just a little bit. The three-fifths clause, fugitive slave laws, the great compromise. That it may be better than a completely fascist ideal of government, but it is far from Christian. Our history with slavery and the entwinement that our constitution and our laws uh, have it within it hopefully disproves that. And maybe we read the constitution a little differently. I told you where I wanted to go next, which means if we, wanna, if we looked at it from the national part, we now have to look at it from the what? From the Christian part. And I wanted to talk about us. I wanted to talk about Laodicea. Laodicea past, Laodicea present, Laodicea future. Do we identify with Laodicea? Like I said, if anybody asks you, where do you go to church? Do you tell them, oh, I'm in the Laodicean church. We probably should, maybe, I don't know. But that is us, is it not? So I told you I wanted to, to look at these principles. Where, what about Adventism's place in this? Because when we look at the dates, when we look at dates like 1850, 1798, I mean, it rings bells, doesn't it? Because it goes right in there with 1844 and 1863, and we'll take a look at those. That's us. In a way, this, this birth of Christian nationalism, the rise, if you will, of this two-horned beast coincides with our rise. And by the way, I don't think it's a wrong way to look at it, that whenever the beast seems to raise up like that, God always sees fit that there is something there that should be the solution. We'll talk about remnant in a minute. But we've always believed that God always provided a remnant no matter what the beast was doing, amen? To prove that he was present, to prove that he was present in his church and that that church was present at that time in history because he promised us that he would not leave us orphaned. So here we are. But to identify ourselves properly, I wanna take a look at our place in history. I wanna look at, at uh, how we did and how, how we might do, how we are doing, if you will. So remember this about Laodicea. What do we know about it? Oops, went backwards. Laodicea's problem, the reason that they feel that they could lock Christ out of the church, that he stands outside the door knocking, is that we say what? We are rich, we've prospered, we have need of nothing, which includes who? Jesus. But he says, you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Laodicea is a defiant assurance in one's own resources. 
She has no needs, physical or spiritual, at all. This is what makes the church lukewarm. So what I ask sometimes, what I, what I wonder, especially this time through, looking at our church, looking at us, what I wonder is, how is it that we feel so safe and secure inside that locked door? How is it we feel so safe and secure with Jesus on the outside? What do we have inside of there that makes us feel that way? Well, I think it's the same answer, if you will, the same answer that, that the scholars have observed about Christian nationalism. See, what have we claimed? What have we claimed that we are? The Seventh-day Adventist Church is the remnant church of Bible prophecy. Isn't that a good definition? That was our apocalyptic definition of our church. We've always said that. Even in the reign of the first beast, like I said, we recognized it. Great controversy shows us that there always was a remnant. The problem with Laodicea is that Jesus looks at Laodicea and the reason Jesus has nothing good to say about Laodicea is there is no remnant. At the height of the first beast's power, the church of Sardis, he said, there are a few of you who have not soiled your robes, right? But apparently, the second beast's power is absolute. Jesus has nothing good to say about Laodicea. There is no remnant in Laodicea. But Laodicea insists that there is. And we insist that who is it? That we are. What is it that makes us feel that we can make a pronouncement like that? What do we have? Dr. Stewart said that, that rather than uh, governing through um, the deliberate, um, uh, how'd she put it, the deliberate resources of our institutions, we look to, or the, the Christian nationalist looks to, idiosyncratic interpretations of the Bible. We can't doubt, we cannot doubt that one of the reasons why we may feel a reason to boast is that we understand our what? We understand our Bibles. And by the way, we should. I've had many, many friends in other churches who if they've had some sort of contact with an Adventist congregation, they will say, they will say, your average member knows their Bible better than most of our clergy. And I, I, I think that's great, except where has it gotten us? Have we looked at it? Have we, are we, would we be willing to admit that we might have some idiosyncratic interpretations that keep us locked inside there, believing that we don't have need of him anymore? Could you get so good at being a Bible student that you do not need Jesus anymore? We have biblical proof of that happened, that that happened uh, time after time. Jesus ran into them all the time. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, priests, leaders looked him right in the eye and said, I know you can't be who you claim to be because the Bible says so. They're looking at the author of the Bible and telling him that the Bible says he can't be the Messiah of God. So it has happened before, has it not? 
Dr. Reinach added also, why is it that we lock him out? Is because the nationalistic religion is a religion without Christ's actions. The beatitudes that are mentioned are, are peacemaking and love your enemy and, and being blessed for being persecuted for righteousness sake. Those are all, those are all actions, not words. Christian nationalist is fine with being identified with the words of the Bible while denying the actions. So this righteousness by remnant doctrine is a bit of an illusion, isn't it? Because the more that we isolate ourselves, believing that we are a remnant, believing that that's what makes us right, then we will always have our empathy for anybody else removed. Could it be that the church is comfortable behind the locked door, comfortable with, with our interpretations, comfortable with our labels of being Christian because we really don't want to deal with the sinners that are outside? To believe that we are righteousness by remnant removes empathy from a sinner because we no longer believe that we are sinners. So then people become marginalized. And we'd like to even get to a point to where we could prove that they're a bad enough sinner that they won't be saved so they don't belong with us. Forget, if you lock Jesus out, of the church, guess who else we lock out of the church? Everybody else. If you do these to the least of these, you have done this to me. So as I said, Philadelphia ends in 1850, six years after the great disappointment. Six years after the great disappointment, the, the reign of the Philadelphia church uh, uh, disappears. Two weeks ago, I read, read to you that early uh, Adventist, early Sabbatarian Adventist that arose from this, this Millerite movement uh, had pointed out and began preaching that the first and the second uh, angel's message was, was that, that one of the horns on the beast was slavery. Because it saw that, that the two horns of, of, of the beast, the civil part and the religious part, had colluded, had come together. And by the way, that is the description of the beast. Is when you get a worldly, civil, uh, authoritative, military empire coming together with, with doctrine, uh, ecclesiastical um, authority, Christian nationalism. When they come together and they collude, that's what makes the beast. And the Millerites had already said, the first and second angel's message was that the church, the North American church, and the North American government, brand new as they were, had colluded in order to allow not only slavery to be legal, but also to make it sacred. By 1627, a, a group of uh, Anglican bishops that had settled in Virginia, they put forth a, a proclamation or a resolution that yes, it was okay to evangelize the slaves, but it in no way freed them. 
And then every other religion, every other sect, if you will, of Christianity that came to these shores adopted that. The abolitionist movement didn't become a church movement, it was an individual movement. By the way, that's what made Philadelphia so loving, is that they didn't rely on any outside power to get it done. They didn't rely on the the brand new American government's power to get anything done. They did it themselves. I was blown away too to find out that the Liberty Party, the brand new Liberty Party that had only one member, had only one um, plank in its platform and that was the abolition of slavery. The candidate for president that year in 1850 The candidate was a Millerite. So if we're organized, we were organized as a church, what year, does anybody know? 1863. What other date rings a bell in 1863? President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863. We were formed as a church at the same time. As early as 1861, Ellen White prophesied that God would punish the United States for the high crime of slavery. Volume one of the testimonies, page 264, she says this, God is punishing this nation for the high crime of slavery. He has the destiny of the nation in his hands. He will punish the South for the sin of of slavery and the North for so long suffering its overreaching and overbearing influence. It's pretty impressive to be able to say that in 1861, two years before the Emancipation Proclamation. And she adds this, she said, when the brethren and sisters assembled on the day of uh, part from humiliation, this is August 3rd, 1861, a Bible conference in New York, they said after humiliation, fasting and prayer, the spirit of the Lord rested upon us and I was taken off in vision. Any doubt as to whether or not this was inspired, what she's about to say. And she said the reason she was taken off to vision was to be shown the sin of slavery, which has so long been a curse to this nation. The fugitive slave law was calculated to crush out of man every noble, generous feeling of sympathy that should arise in his heart for the oppressed and suffering slave. You now have the prophet of this church openly campaigning for her members of the church to ignore the brand new amendment to the Constitution of the Fugitive Slave Act. It was in direct opposition to the teaching of Christ, she says. God's scourge is now upon the North because they've so long submitted to the advances of the slave power. The sin of Northern pro-slavery men is great. They've strengthened the South in their sin by sanctioning the extension of slavery. They've acted a prominent part in bringing the nation into its present distressed condition. 1861, she writes this. By the way, She takes the same tact, the same tactic 
that the punishment that came for both the North and the South was the war itself. So four years before President Lincoln says the same thing in his second inaugural address. Remember, the, the, the dilemma that President Lincoln had was at the end of the war, he needed to bring the Union back together. And everyone else was seeing the victory, the Union victory, as, as, as God's uh, blessing. And he says, <laughs> he said, there were nearly a million people killed. How could this be a blessing for either side? And so what he said was, was that the sin of slavery was on the North and the South. The punishment for both of them was the war itself. And Ellen White had said the same thing four years earlier. Lincoln says the prayers of both the North and the South can't be answered. Neither's been answered fully. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it, must, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to the man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, by which, but which, having continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove, and that he gives both North and South this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offense came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribe to him? And at the end of that, when he declares that if the war should continue to go on, let every drop of blood, every drop of blood be shed, be payment for every ounce of sweat for which another human being was bound to slavery. And by the way, then he concludes with malice towards none and charity towards all. Keeping that in mind, any church member who was seen at least in public or known in public to have pro-slavery views, north or south, Ellen White said we should disfellowship. In the same volume of first, uh, first volume of the testimonies, skip ahead to page 358 if you want to take a look at it. Satan was the first great leader in rebellion, Brother A., Brother A of Oswego County, New York is who she's talking to, a northern member of the Adventist church. She said, God is punishing the north that they have so long suffered the accursed sin of slavery to exist. For in the sight of heaven, it is a sin of the darkest dye. God is not with the south, and he will punish them dreadfully in the end. Satan is the instigator of all rebellion. I saw that you, Brother A, have permitted your political principles to destroy your judgment and your love for the truth. They are, they are eating out true godliness from your heart. You've never looked upon slavery in the right light, and your views of this matter have thrown you on the side of the rebellion which was stirred by Satan and his host. Your views of slavery cannot harmonize with the sacred, important truths for this time. You must yield your views or the truth. Both cannot be cherished in the same heart, for they are at war with each other. Unless you do 
what you have, unless you undo what you have done, it will be the duty of God's people to publicly withdraw their sympathy and their fellowship from you. So the righteous by remnant say, who belongs and who doesn't? In this particular case, in the heat of it, in the heat of the battle, right in the, in the very beginning of the first shots fired in the Civil War, whatever the national religion in law and war and practice, the church said that slaves could belong, but they couldn't be free. Ellen White says that a pro-slavery member does not. We used to disfellowship for hatred, bigotry, and racism. And I know, there are a couple of people out there who come to talk to me all the time and say, why are you still talking about the 1860s? Okay, let's jump ahead to the 1940s. How about the church and the Holocaust? As to who belongs and who doesn't. Same type of problem, is it not? Can a Christian religion sponsor, or at least not call out, but still sponsor any sort of racism? How about anti-Semitism? Elie Wiesel wrote, the victims of the Holocaust perished not only because of the killers, but also because of the apathy of the bystanders. Those who perished were victims of Nazism and of society, though of different degrees. What astonished us after the torment, after the tempest, was not that so many killers killed so many victims, but that so few cared about us at all. Did the church do all we could? No. But we were in good company. There wasn't any Christian church who could do all they could. There were millions of Christians in these countries. Millions. But there were no mass demonstrations in the streets of Berlin or Warsaw or Munich or Vienna. When the first anti-Semitic laws were passed, there were no demonstrations. The United States said nothing, who by the way should have known better, because when you read those first anti-Semitic laws, they are word for word every Jim Crow law that had passed in the South from 1860 all the way up to 1930. And we said nothing. Did Christianity have the power to do something? I'll put this forward to you, to do something significant. I'll put this forward to you. I believe we did. In 1940, after the invasion in Poland, the Nazis wanted to implement their euthanasia program to eliminate the so-called mentally defective. Do you know who stopped it? A force, a joint effort of Catholic bishops and Protestant clergy. We knew we could have done it if we just would have. There were rescuers, there were individual rescuers. 
Many, many trees planted on the avenue of the righteous at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, who belonged to individual Christians. There were individuals, many of them. I don't want to downplay them to make a point. I'm not going to downplay any of their efforts in order to make a point. But a strong statement from just one denomination, one official world church, how much more could have been saved? Who could argue with this? The SDA position was the position of every other church in Eastern Europe from the 20s all the way to the end of World War II. In 1941, the Adventist leadership instructed all churches to expel all Jewish and Jewish-related members as ordered by the Third Reich. Some resisted, most didn't. And if they did, it was done for them from above. So if there was a congregation who said that we'll stand up and we're not going to expel our Jewish members, somebody from the conference or the union or the division did it for them. In 1942, the church paper Halal Stel Pravde carried the announcement that the mailing of this paper and the Adventist Sabbath School Quarterly would be discontinued to all Jewish and Jewish-related members. We even have names. Sarah Nagelberg, who was in the Dornbrun SDA church. She died at Mauthausen. William Yokel, SDA member of a Vienna church for 33 years. An SDA member for 33 years. And asked for help and was told that it was the responsibility of the Viennese Jewish community. The man had been a member of our church for 33 years and we told him to go back to his Jewish community for help. By the way, nothing is known of his fate. Pastor and theologian Herman Cobbs, who worked in Leipzig, was suspended for making it possible for a Jewish believer who'd been expelled to attend his church. Church leaders called the suspension a precautionary measure. In 1942, he was then imprisoned and labeled as a Jewish prisoner because of his actions. Franz Ludwig, the Adventist publishing director in Bernau, whose wife, Frida, was a Jew, was interrogated by the Gestapo in 1939. The Adventist leaders in Prague were told by the German leadership in Berlin to disassociate themselves from their fellow worker, and they were sent to a camp. They survived. It still pains them, I would imagine, they said, to recall being shunned by their church. How did Laodicea conclude that this was a Christ-like thing to do? How did they conclude this? They used this verse. In fact, in all the papers that you see, in, 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 in all of the union, this was the verse that they believed they were serving when they began to serve the Third Reich as they did. Let every person be subject to what? to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. I'm not arguing with that verse at all. See, but if you have, you have taken that verse and, you, and, and we've ensconced ourselves with it and we won't look beyond it or anything else, which by the way is a definition of an idiosyncratic view, that we won't look at context, 
what seems to be a clear Bible command, but what did they conveniently forget? That you can enforce Romans 13, 1 without thinking of what? Without thinking of Daniel 6. And the men that accused Daniel said, we're not going to find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. How do we miss Daniel 6? For church, by the way, for a Laodicea that claimed that we know Daniel better than anybody knows Daniel. Jacques Tucan in his book, The Secrets of Daniel, points this out. Daniel 6 contains all the characteristics of modern anti-Semitism. A hatred of foreigners, a hatred of their customers, a hatred of their religion, a morbid jealousy. What did they have against Daniel? There's only one thing that they had against Daniel. When he is called out to Darius, they say, Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah. I'll tell you what's wrong with him. All that was wrong with Daniel was that he was Jewish. By the way, anti-Semitism is convinced that it has political ramifications, that it's a threat to unity. Dr. DeCong concludes by saying, whenever a society is perceived that the Jew is a threat to unity, anti-Semitism becomes the unifying factor. Marxism, Nazism, left wing, right wing, they've all led to the same action for the past 2,500 years. The Holocaust was the third in a series of very serious attempts to nearly extinguish every Jewish life from this planet. So again, you asked me, so I, I, I didn't come in the future far enough. I came up to 1940. I still talk about it because well into the 2000s, I can't say it for lately, but well into the 2000s, our standard revelation seminar in evangelism still said that the fulfillment of the zoo prophecy, the Daniel 7 prophecy, was contained, contained the statement that God had rejected Israel. Dr. DeCon always pointed out to us, by the way, that if you believe that Israel's been replaced, then what need do you have of it anymore? And what does it lead to? Especially if you've got a nationalistic power who's willing to carry out whatever crazy, idiosyncratic idea of prophecy you may have. I don't even know where I'm at now. Sorry, let me go back. I'm gonna stay there, it's safe there. So I guess what I'm asking is that, yes, it was 1940, but I hear it all the time. I hear us talk about it. I had a sweet saint, 90 years old, sat in the front row. And I was telling how I thought that uh, Marian, uh, Moses' sister, was a genius because she arranged for uh, Pharaoh's daughter to nurse 
right? She arranged for a nurse for Pharaoh's daughter for Moses, turned out to be her own mother, and she was sponsored for it. That sweet saint in the middle of church looked up and said, ah, typical Jew. I was at a camp meeting. I guess I don't mind saying it. I was at Redwood Camp Meeting one year, and a prominent evangelist, very popular evangelist in the church, had a, an illustration in one of his presentations and talked about being Jewed down. I bring it up now, too, because to prove that, that even in, in the future... There are many, many Christian scholars that at the end of 1945, when we realized what happened, when we realized what our theology had done to us, there were many who believed, you know what we need to do is we need to strip this house down to the studs and start all over again. By the way, there's only one church that opened up a school of theology, of post-Holocaust theology to do that very thing. And by the way, it was the Roman Catholic Church and the department is at Notre Dame. So move forward. Ten years after the war that liberated the camps, supposed to eliminate fascism, it failed to reach our own shores. Many Southern Baptist churches taught that uh, Philip Yancey in his book Soul Survivor says this. He goes, I learned the theological basis for racism in my church. My pastor taught that the Hebrew word ham meant burnt black, making Noah's son Ham the father of Negro races. And then in a curse, Noah had consigned him to life as a lowly servant, according to Genesis 9. That's when I heard my pastor explain why black people make such good waiters and household servants. He acted out their moves on the platform, swiveling his hips as if to avoid a table, pretending to balance a tray of food above his head, and we all laughed at his antics. The colored waiter is good at that job because that's the job God destined for him in the curse of Ham. No one bothered to point out that the curse was actually pronounced on Noah's grandson, Canaan not ham. See, but when you're locked into the church and lock Jesus out and you, all you have is your Bible, you can make it say whatever you want. Right? The Mississippi Baptist record at this time 1964 published an article arguing that God meant for whites to rule over blacks because a race whose mentality averages on borderline idiocy is obviously bereft of any divine blessing. <laughs> in a nation that's supposedly Christian. This is the Mississippi Baptist record. If anyone questions such racist doctrine, pastors pulled out the trump card of miscegenation or mixing of the races, which some speculated was the sin that had prompted God to destroy the world in Noah's day. Like I said, you make it say whatever you want. And they would silence you with the ultimate question, do you want your daughter bringing home a black boyfriend? And that was it.
When we talked about this two years ago, I still had people coming up to me say, "Why, Greg, the Civil War is over. And I thought about that. I thought about that for a long time. Is that one of the things taught by Christian nationalists is that the Civil War was what ended slavery, which it did not. We needed one, two, three, four constitutional amendments after the Civil War was fought in order to bring some sort of semblance of equality over the next 200 years. 13th Amendment, we had to have a 13th Amendment to abolish slavery. It comes in 1865. The 14th Amendment made it illegal to deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of laws. It isn't ratified until 1868. The 15th Amendment guaranteed the right to vote regardless of color, not until 1870. By the way, by October of 2021, 19 states had enacted 33 laws that made it harder for Americans to vote. That Voting Rights Act in 1870 had to be redone in in 1965. The Supreme Court gutted it in, in 2012. Eighteen sixty-five, eighteen sixty-eight, eighteen seventy—all of that. The government trying to make strides. Is the church helping at all? In eighteen ninety, Robert Kilgore introduces a policy of segregation for the General Conference of Seventh Day Adventists, and it's accepted. The church will remain segregated until the mid-1950s despite prophetic guidance given to the General Conference in 1891 by Ellen White pleading and teaching, documented here in the, in the, in the Southern work. Um, she said, those who slide a brother because of his color are sliding Jesus. The result of the neglect of the colored people, curse of sin on the church. The white church is to repair as far as it is in their power the past injury done to the colored people. Ellen White was for reparations in 1891. White church was supposed to throw their influence against the customs and practices of the world. The love of Jesus is the dissipator of hereditary and cultivated practices. Southern work, pages 9 to 12. But 1942, as a war is raging to end fascism across the country, in 1942, a woman named Lucy Byard was brought critically ill to the Washington Sanitarium. Immediate treatment began on her until somebody found out that she was black. Treatment stopped. They put her in the hallway to transport her across town to the Freeman Hospital, where she later died. By the way, when we talk about the regional conferences and everything that has completely segregated our church, this was the last straw right here. All the black leaders of the church were patiently waiting for the white church to do something about truly integrating them, to try to do something about the segregation that was brought in this church in 1890. Nothing was happening. General conference president after general conference president, nothing was happening. They were getting anxious and then this happened. And they said, you know what? It isn't safe at all. And they voted unanimously to begin to create the regional conferences. 
because they said it ain't going to change. By 1948, Carlisle B. Haynes, anybody know that name? One of our most popular evangelists and authors gives an interview in the Atlantic Constitution Journal and the headline in the interview says, Adventist upholds racial segregation, 1948. Carlisle B. Haynes says, doctrines of the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man have no place in the Christian church and are altogether untrue, says Elder Haynes of Washington, D.C., who told a congregation here Friday at the Beverly Road Seventh-day Adventist Church, Haynes upheld racially segre racial segregation, maintaining it was originated by God, set forth in the Bible as the divine way for the nations and races to get on together. So don't come to me saying, what are you talking about Baptists for? You can still get two books of Elder Haynes in the ABC today if you want to. So if you think that we're dwelling in the past too much, I'll just leave you with this article by Pastor Daniel Sisto, pastor, author, teacher. He says this, he says, I've heard many more Adventists say, I, I've heard more Adventists say unchristlike things and act in unchristlike ways than I care to admit. But the worst of them is what happened to me in the summer of 2017. What was that date? So am I far enough past? 1860, 1940. I'm now in 2017. Is that okay? <laughs> By the way, I keep looking at Ed. Ed is not one of them that talked to me. I'm just looking at Ed because he always gives me encouragement. Okay, so <laughs> I don't want to give the wrong impression. He said the worst of them happened in the summer of 2017. The KKK, the neo-Nazis and other racists from around our country descended upon Charlottesville, Virginia, just a few miles from my church. Those white supremacists killed a young woman, injured 28 others when a white 20-year-old man plowed his car into a group of peaceful counter-protesters. In the weeks that followed, I was speaking at another church, sharing my firsthand experience of the evil and animosity I had witnessed. I started my talk by saying, I'm not okay because white supremacists, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, KKK members, and other domestic terrorist groups thought they could come into my town and cause my friends to fear. And he said, as soon as I finished that first sentence, several people in the congregation stood up turned their back on me and walked out of the sanctuary. Let that sink in. I said I was not okay with the KKK and church members walked out of my sanctuary. At the conclusion of my talk, which was about the unity we have in Christ, several of the church leaders approached me asking why I was calling people KKK and Nazis. Had they not seen the photos? I displayed some of them of the men in hoods and bearing swastikas at that very rally. These church members were more concerned for the people that I was labeling as Nazis than they were for a dead woman who was marching for love and equality and also the display that had just been given in their own church.
For instance, he says, there was a time at a workers' meeting when I was sitting at breakfast and several seasoned pastors who happened to be white. We were discussing the next day's schedule and one of the pastors sarcastically said, oh great, three black guys will be speaking. I should get a lot out of this. The implication being that middle-aged white men could learn nothing from the three black presenters, all of whom were well-accomplished, well-known speakers in our church, some even internationally recognized. It was this same pastor, by the way, when we were told we were gonna eat at a restaurant called the Afghan Kebab, asked if we would receive bulletproof vests upon entering the establishment. Our language, how we look at people, how we act, what comes across. Do we think that people aren't listening? Even the language, Islamic terrorists, when we always say Islamic or, or Muslim terrorists or extremists, you know, it's how we label them. You ever notice that in our country, Christian terrorists get a, get a pass, don't they? We never say Christian terrorists, right? But the nation has had these guys around for quite a while. What's that sign say? I was listening to a comedian, forgive me, if, if you don't think I should be quoting a comedian, but I was listening to a Palestinian comedian who has a nephew named Osama living in Houston, a nephew, a nine-year-old nephew. You know? And when he said that he had a nephew named Osama, the, the, the crowd kind of moaned, and the reason was, was because they were wondering what kind of life that kid has named Osama in Houston. Okay? And he goes, Osama, he said, you know, that's a very proud name where I come from. Son of the lion is Osama. That's, that's what it means. It's a very proud name. He goes, you know what? I never noticed anybody wanting to change their child's name from Timothy after Oklahoma City. Christian terrorist, by the way, Timothy McVeigh. So what do we do? with the political will, the laws, and all the popular opinion when they come together to make it clear that it's completely antithetical to the kingdom of heaven values. What do we do? We have to go back to what I've been saying for three weeks. Somebody has got to get up and go open the door. Harder Bible study is not going to do it. Praying for revival, we've prayed, we've prayed. And yet here we are. So ask yourself one question that when we see this, does our faith or our theology guide our politics or our, our national interest or is it the other way around? That's all I'm asking. And until we resolve the conflict, we know where we have to err, right? We err on the side of what? We err on the side of grace. When I preached this last year, it was from this sermon series that we did on the cross and the sword. Jews demand signs, Greek desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. By the way, it just about covers it, right? Jews and Gentiles, covers it. He's a stumbling block to who? He's a stumbling block to everybody. 
and especially his church from 1850 to 2022, all the way to when he comes again. But to those who are both called Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, just to give us citizenship in this kingdom. The only kingdom we want to be members of. Amen? We may believe that Jesus remains the biggest stumbling block to non-believers, but I believe he's the biggest stumbling block to believers. He's the biggest stumbling block to us, which, by the way, is why we locked him out. Because every time we got it knocked, every time we think that something that, that, that is absolute, and every time he comes in and he messes it all up when he tells you, why don't you love your enemies? You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you, that's why we don't like him, he's always doing that, but I say to you stuff. By the way, in that kingdom, if we live in a kingdom who in the end, believers won't be able to buy or sell, what do you call people who can't buy or sell living in a kingdom? Poor, right? Poor. There's not two groups. There's not the poor and the rich. There's only the what? Only the poor. I think that'd be kind of ironic. If the church has a problem taking care of the poor, and if the church is still around in the end time, they're the ones that are gonna end up being poor. So, there's only one church. It's us, living in today. The kingdom's ours because he gave it to us. He gave it to us. Is it easy? Is it easy to try to live out our kingdom of heaven citizenship while on earth? Anybody having an easy time at it? No, of course it isn't. But our struggle, by the way, does not disqualify us one iota from the kingdom. Just because we struggle doesn't mean the kingdom still isn't ours. It's ours. I think it'd just be a good idea to open the door and put him back on the throne. We have to lay aside our works of darkness, as Ellen White puts it. We need to find our morality in love, but only Christ's love. one thing to quarrel about points of doctrine, but it's disturbing to me to see what we're quarreling about today, the fundamental things that we seem to be quarreling about, quarreling about. Love has to be without violence, it has to be without force, it has to be without fear. It at least should have been one cause that we always should have been united on. From 1798, 1844 to 1850, 1868, 1888, 1942, 2022. Again, I thank the Lord that we're together, that we get to go through it together. We need to figure out how do we can get to make sure that no one lacks or misses the grace of God.
Thank you for hanging on again.